0: Welcome back, friends. The Self-Care Unit is back with a Mental Health Matters episode. Today, we are joined by Christy O. T. She's a Chicago-based writer and essayist, say that three times fast, who is known for her memoir and New York Times bestseller group, How One Therapist and a Circle of Strangers Saved My Life. She also leads writing workshops through Write Together, LLC. Thank you so much for taking time to be with us today, Christy, and thank you for the tongue twisters this this <laughs> afternoon. Um, really wakes a girl up.
1: <laughs> thank you so much for having me. I, I really like conversations about mental health, and I'm always happy to, to dig in anytime. And how are you doing this week?
0: We love to ask our guests, how's it going? It could be not going, and that's fine,
1: you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, my favorite month of the year is January. And I don't have a good explanation for that. Because I live in Chicago and the sun may come out three times this month. I like the sense of renewal. And the I feel like I mentally turn a page. So I used to say, well, I haven't screwed anything up yet this year. <laughs> but <clears throat> so I'm feeling the January sort of breath of fresh airness, which is a real blessing after, you know, the slog of the end of the year. It's nice to be here.
0: Wow. I love that.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I know. I feel like January can be very daunting if you think about it more negatively. Like, oh my gosh, okay, I have to prove myself this year. New year, new me, all that stuff. So I like the way you said that.
0: Like, Doing great, like the bar Can only is, go up.
2: Yes, is yeah.
0: so low. It's wonderful. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. I love that, and I'm like, it can't be as bad as last year. It can't be as bad as the year before that. It can't be. As-
2: <laughs> That's We're looking exactly up, right. folks.
0: <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh, I'm doing pretty good.
2: Carly, how are you doing? Uh, I worked Wednesday, and it was just one of those shifts. I had everything going on, super busy. Uh, But luckily, my patients were nice. They just were higher acuity. So I was just doing all the things, blood, fluids, calling rapid nurse, all that fun stuff. So luckily, they're good. All my patients are safe. But
0: it's like when you're you're the one driving the bus that is like destined to go off the cliff (laughs) and you're just like rooting for everyone. (laughs) Behind you, uh-huh. and you're like we're gonna be fine, guys. It's gonna be fine. I'm blessed. I'm here to- with you. Yeah. We got we're doing this together. <laughs> that's how it feels. That's a metaphor for high acuity nursing for sure.
2: <laughs> right. I'm blessed with wonderful coworkers. If you guys are listening, I love you very much because they are all helping me. Like, okay, I'm done with this, and then I'm coming to you, girl. Tell me what you need. like <laughs> amazing.
0: Yeah, that's the best, especially the ones who like can sense disarray and are like, I will come rescue you. Um, Christy, you trace your path to group therapy as an adult in your memoir, which you mentioned people think is not a memoir. Um, but what about in your younger years? Were there discussions about mental health that you were able to have with family prior to this, or was this kind of your dive into, um, your own introspection and understanding yourself more deeply through other people?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And it, ah, oh, I just feel such grief when I think about the mental health moment I was born into. I was, I'm 50. So I was born in 73. I grew up in Texas in a fairly conservative Catholic community and household. And I had, my dad was in 12 step recovery for alcoholism. So he had recovery and was a wonderful thing, but we weren't really allowed to talk about it. That was my sense. It was a great shame. It was like we really leaned hard on the anonymous part of the twelve-step programs, which I, as a kid, I metabolized out as shame. And in high school, I started having trouble very early on. Eating disorders was my first manifestation of my ill illness, my disease in the world. And I, it was a secret as many eating disorders are. And I kept getting in. Tr- I was bulimic and I was bad at it. Cause I think I was trying to get caught. I was looking for some help and it was so easy to say, Oh no, I'm fine. I'm fine. Because I think there was such fear about pulling on the thread of like, what, what are you, what are you acting out for yourself on behalf of our family? We did not have any tools. We didn't know anybody who had any tools And when I finally crashed in in high school, I was really crashing. And I went to the campus, the campus minister, which is something they only, I think they only have in Catholic schools. And she was trying to get me some help. And my mom was very worried. She was so worried that I was going to be socially ostracized that she was just like, don't tell anyone, just be okay. Just be okay. You can make up. I remember her telling me, you can make up your mind to be okay. And I was like, Okay. I'll try that. (laughs) Uh, Spoiler alert, it did not work. So there were not many conversations. I myself got into recovery at 19. So I had places I could go when I'd go to meetings. I got into recovery for my eating disorder. And we would talk in those rooms, very frankly, about the things we did with food and what was underneath all of that, because it wasn't just about food, of course. But I also didn't have conversations outside of there. It was a secret. I went to these secret meetings and... It wasn't until I was in my really almost 30 where I was, I would even be able to tell someone I have a therapist. I'm in recovery and that's a long time. And I, I hope it's changing. I know my, my kids all have therapists and their friends have therapists so that we're, we've come a long way, which I'm very grateful for.
2: Yeah. I was, we talk about this a lot and my little sister is about nine years younger than me. I'm 30. So she, nine, eight years. I don't know. But she, uh, she has paved that way for my family. She's been in therapy. She's amazing. She talks about everything. Like there are no qualms. So just let it out. And I love that, just that vulnerability and that openness that she has. And I try to, Sarah and I talk about like, we, we don't want to overshare or dump on people, but at the same time, it's really important to feel connected with others and like eating disorders and stuff like that. So it's, Nice to feel not alone at the same time. So that yeah. that limit of like, what do I share? But I want you to feel welcome here. Yeah,
0: yeah. And like, I, I just I took a deep breath. I'm like, and I know anyone with like intergenerational trauma and just childhood wounds and um, the not talking about it all, the seeing the manifestations of mental illness within your family and seeing the pain but not having a name for it and just allowing it to continue to avoid the shame associated with it and to allow that to just break entire families is so tragic and unnecessary and to be a child growing in a world and navigating that is so difficult while having different emotions. And I really love that you pointed out, Christy, and it just shows how much- you have really how much you know yourself and how much you know your past self, where you identify the fact that you were coping coping in these ways to have some kind of recognition for what it was you were going through while yeah. being suppressed in different ways by society, by the era, and also by your family, which is the most painful wound I feel um, there can be. And as one of the cycle breakers, and my family, that's really tough. But it is also freeing to be that because then you see your behaviors and a new way mirrored in the people that you love. And I would take that over the the hiding of it all any day. (laughs) So what you have done is so beautiful.
1: Thank you. And I certainly can appreciate – the fears about oversharing. I mean, that's what people, one of the major charges against memoir and particularly memoirs by women, like oh, navel gazing, narcissistic, and we're fighting against those messages when we're trying to tell our stories, be it just to a friend or to a group of people, or to put out a book. We're walking a we're walking through years of conditioning that we're supposed to serve other people's stories, not have our own. That's even before you get to the shame that surrounds addiction and trauma, like you said. And I think it's been it's been absolutely, and it's not an exaggeration to say that it's saved my life, that I've found communities where other people are sharing too. So it's not the Christie show. If I go into a 12 step meeting, it's not the Christie show. I'm a bozo on the bus, same with group therapy. I'm one person, one voice among others. And I get to both witness and be the person who's letting something out, letting something go.
2: Yeah. One of the main concepts that you start right away with in your memoir is about the feeling of loneliness and the grief that comes with that and feeling like an outsider. And I think a lot of people in their own way can resonate with that. And I know, like you even said at the beginning of this, I have that very like, fake it till you make it. Like things, there might be fire and shit storm around you, but hey we're totally fine, like smile and wave. And I, this concept is also very, um happens a lot in nursing as well. And this whole toxic positivity that, yeah, mm. we're trying to get rid of and just understanding that it's okay to have bad days. It's okay to not be okay. And that's one of the reasons why we have this podcast just to normalize everything. But when did you decide that you wanted to share your story? And were there any worries that you had about that at the beginning?
1: Oh, I had many, many worries. <laughs> I i mean, my book came out three years ago, more than three years and a couple months ago. And sometimes I still, I'll, I'll see, I'll come across it on social media or I'll think about it. And like, I can't believe I did that. Did I do that? So the fear is real and I did it anyway. And I originally, I thought, I wanted to write a novel and I was trying to, I was circling some of the concepts that were in the book about what it means to hold secrets, what it means to have a powerful therapist, what it means to get well in a group. And I was trying to fictionalize it because I'm, I'm nobody who cares about what I did in therapy was my, who cares about a white lady who went to therapy because she wanted a boyfriend. That was my denigrating way of talking about my work. And my novels were just not successful because they didn't feel real. And I finally thought, well, I'll just I'll write the memoir as practice for learning how to write. I did not think it was going out into the world. And I started it in 2015 as like practice. I thought of it like like a basketball player has to go to the gym and shoot a bunch of hoops. And then you play a game, but you spend way more time practicing than doing the game. So I was like, okay, this book will be like a practice. Then I'll learn how to write and then I'll go write a novel. Except when I started showing people parts of the book, they were like, oh no, this is a real book. And I was like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, uh-oh. You know, there's all the things that any memoirist fears. What's my mom going to say? What's my dad going to say? And it's explicit. Like one one of the ways in which I participated in unhealthy behaviors with men was like through sex. And it was part of the story. I'm like, my dad's going to read this. Oh, Lordy. Um, Again, conservative and Catholic. So that was going to be really a challenge. And what I did was I just surrounded myself with people who were also writing and they were just as scared as I was. I wasn't special. I was writing and you never know. You don't know your book is a book until it goes. And then I had a book deal and then i suddenly had to start having conversations with people but there was enough momentum on the side of telling that i was ready to have whatever conversations i needed to have and i gave myself to have i gave myself permission to have imperfect conversations to write an imperfect book and to let people have their feelings and that that i can say that easily now that was like weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks of therapy to get to where that and i genuinely feel that I wish I could have done it perfectly. I wish everyone was doing the river dance. So joy about my books—they aren't. They don't, and I can live with that because it's more important. Like you were saying earlier, Sarah, like it was more important to break the cycle. It was more important to tell than it was to be sure everybody still liked me. I
2: didn't, and I never even it's funny when I think about therapy, I never think about the concept of group therapy and therapy has been something I've gone back and forth with. I did it for a little bit online. And I think now that I'm at this place where I am, I want to dive into in person. Just, Mm -hmm. I think it's just something that would benefit me better, but can you describe like what group therapy is? um, Like kind of how it goes for people that didn't read your book, kind of how it goes in group therapy and
1: what that looks like. Sure. So I had started hearing, I was starting to get really depressed. I was in law school. I was very competent. I was making amazing grades and inside I was crumbling. I was really, really crumbling. And I didn't have language. I just was like, I hate myself. I kind of want to die, which seemed like that's weird because I'm first in my class in law school. I should be at least a little bit happy. And I was not even a little bit. And I started talking to people in my 12-step meetings and people that i pinpointed were all seeing the same therapist and i was like huh and it turned out he did group which i was not interested in group no thank you i don't need witnesses for my ugliness and my messiness but i didn't have any money i had no money for this you know mental health treatment is expensive in this country i didn't have i had bare bones insurance and no money so group the value of group and how I ever got in the door is that it was cheaper. It was only $60 an hour instead of $275, which was not going to happen. So, my plan was I'll see this guy. I will, when I graduate from law school and start making lawyer money, then I'll go get a real therapist, which I put in air quotes because I really was like, this isn't even real. It's just like a stop, it's like a tourniquet until I can get to some real, like real platinum help. <laughs> So I go in and this, the doctor in the book, everyone has a pseudonym. So Dr. Rosen. And I had the experience when I, first you go in for a couple individual sessions, he kind of figures out who you are and figures out what group to put you in. And I was really blown away because he was really smart. Like he had my number, you know, those people who were, he was like, I said one thing about the guy I was dating and he was like, oh, you, you like alcoholics. And I had not said anything about alcohol but he was completely and totally right. I was like, yeah, I pretty much love them. And it destroys me inside. (laughs) So he knew that. And just, I had given him a few facts. And then at the end, he was so cocky. He was like, well, we can, he was like, what do you want? And I was like, I want a relationship with a clean man. (laughs) He was like, okay, what else? And he kept saying, what else, what else? And I was like, I don't have like a bunch of wants. I'm trying not to die. I'm trying to become an attorney and I'd like to have a normal life and start a family. And he seemed to think like the sky was the limit. He was like, he could do that, like no problem. And I had seen other therapists who seemed sort of like, we need to talk about your mother. I don't know, you've got this weird eating thing. But he was just like, I've seen you before. You're going to fit right in. I got a whole land of misfit toys and you're all going to be fine. And he stuck me in a group that was all doctors and lawyers. No, it was a professionals group. For a while, there was a nurse in there. And it was anybody who required a license for their job because we have different sets of issues. And I didn't even understand that at the time. Honestly, I was like, where's my boyfriend? You promised a boyfriend. Um, And I went in there and it was terrifying. It was terrifying. People were asking me questions. I couldn't control, like I like image management. I wanted to control the story that the therapist heard. I wanted to entertain him. I, to be honest, there was a part of me that kind of wanted him to think I was beautiful. I mean, I wouldn't have said seduce because I was really shut down, but I would like I wanted to dazzle and control. And when you're in group, people are throwing things at you, and they're doing their thing, and so instantly my image management was just deflated. Like, okay, I'm just going to hold to my chair and try not to fly out of the room. What I learned very early on was my problems could be framed with an addiction. You know, my eating disorder qualified as an addiction. I came from addiction, all my family tree, and that my isolation, my shame, my silence, my not telling, that was making me very, very sick. And how do you cure that? Plot me down in a group of five other patients and ask me to start telling things. And it was like turbo. It was completely, it was like power washing (laughs) it was and it was terrifying and i was i didn't sleep for the first few months because i was just so keyed up and afraid and it felt like betraying my mom and betraying my dad and what was i doing it was a secret and and i turned things started to get better for me like i started to tell for the first time in my life i looked people in the eye and i told them what i ate which doesn't sound like a big deal i would have rather told them about sex or money or anything but my shame was around my food. Other people had other things. And once I started talking about my food, I could see I was getting more uncomfortable, but I was getting better. Because what was comfortable to me was isolation, loneliness, despair, depression. What group was offering me was company, a witness, a breaking out of isolation. and That was really scary and uncomfortable. It still is. Some I still go. I still have the same group um, and I'm still getting well. I like to say I'm still getting weller, <laughs> um, but it's, it's a wonderful thing. I went because it was cheap and I stayed because it worked.
0: I love that. That's the way you tie it all in. And like yeah. my first experience with therapy reminds me of how you presented um, the image control piece where mm-hmm. I Cared more about what my therapist thought of me as a person and what I shared with them than what I was getting out of therapy. So I was often not fully sharing what Mm. I needed to talk about, only enough that maybe we would get through the next session. I also, you know, would be given tasks to complete by the next um, session. And normally I wouldn't finish it, but I had like the perfectly tailored excuse as to why I didn't (laughs) so that I wouldn't feel the shame of my therapist judging me. And it's so tragic that like some, like a lot of these modalities that are completely by the book and the way kind of Western mental health Mm. support, forces therapists to only take one route for everyone they care for, even though we're all very different. And then we wonder why it's not working. (laughs) We need extra support. And I love that you pointed group therapy out to our listeners because a lot of our listeners are licensed healthcare professionals. Mm -hmm. A lot of our listeners have those unique circumstances Mm -hmm. that – Um, only lawyers can get. Only nurses can get. Only doctors can get. Only allied health professionals can get. And it gets even more broken down by specialty. It gets even more broken Mm. down by what part of the hospital you work in gets you a certain level of nuts because of what your environment is like, for lack of a better term. But it's so crucial. And what we've learned through Don't Clock Out we do peer support groups, which are a lot different from group therapy, but it has that same peer element that encourages openness and communication and conversation and safety in speaking about Mm. the things that you feel like no one else understands until you are faced with someone who said, I had that exact same experience. Here's what happened to me. And it's powerful. It's profound and it's life changing. And Chrissy, you're, you're here because of that. And it's uh, it, may, it gives me chills. I'm like, chills, y'all. I hope you're having chills too.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I I love to hear this because m- the message of my book, to the extent it's a messagey book, it's a memoir, it's not a self-help book. It's not go find a Dr. Rosen, go join group therapy. It's it's what you're talking about. It's find find somebody, even if it's one other person who can hear you, who can see you and identify with you. And there's, I I enjoy Dr. Rosen. He's my therapist, but it's not he can't serve the world, you know. But there are, the principles are: let yourself be known, get, let yourself be messy, take your secrets to another person, and find a place where your your pain, your intensity, your anxiety is speakable. And what the other thing I was thinking about when you were talking is like nurses, like lawyers, I would say more so than lawyers and doctors think intense things happen at work and we're not really supposed to talk about them. Like we're not supposed, there's supposed, there's, there's guidelines. I'm not supposed to say many, many parts of I spend how many hours a week at work and I can't talk about it. And to have a place where people are doing what you're doing, can see you and, and witness you. It is absolutely how, how, how the chain is broken, the chain of isolation and you know, there's really bad outcomes for people who try to carry this alone.
2: There, and there is like what you said there, I think there can be a lot of loneliness in healthcare and why we created these organizations and nonprofits is because I can Mm. tell, you know, my significant other, I can tell family members that are not medical or healthcare professionals and it's not their fault, but they're not ever going to understand what I'm feeling. You know, it's like, oh, I had a patient pass away last week. And now there's another patient in that room. And I'm just supposed to act like that never happened. Like we're moving on next week. And it's like, how do you tell somebody about that trauma when they don't understand? So I, it's funny as nurses, like I'll go out with my friends that are nurses and we'll go to lunch. And we're like, okay, no one's allowed to talk about work but we always end up talking about work because it's our little group therapy sessions. We're all just like with each other, the comfort of you get it. You understand where I'm coming from. And that's just like a really good feeling. But yeah, it's, maybe I should try group therapy. (laughs) And I was, when I was listening to your story, I was like, wow, they're just letting all out there. Like, like you said, like sex and all these things. And the little old Christian Indiana girl of me was like, Oh my God, I can never talk about that with strangers. But at the same time, I can imagine how freeing that is as well. Like, Hey, this is me. I'm laying it on the table for you guys. Like in that messiness that you said that ends up like being very beautiful. So I like that.
1: Yeah. I definitely was not, did not know what I was signing up for. (laughs) I did not read the fine prints. And the other thing that was really helpful I mean, life-saving is more than helpful, was I had repressed so many feelings. So there's a lot we weren't talking about in my household. There was also repressed emotions. Um, I mean, when I think back about what is bulimia, I think it's just rage. It's just unprocessed rage, predominantly, probably anxiety and shame too, but really it's rage. And when I got, you know, I landed in group therapy at 28 years old and I'd never told anyone I was angry at them. I'd never... I'd never screamed except for when I was like a couple of times when I got drunk and I had a drunk boyfriend and that was just a really sick alcoholic dance. And so to be able to be, be really loud and explosive with my anger in group within the container of group to get some of that out. I mean, I was so backlogged. No wonder I couldn't have relationships. If, if you got too close to me, I was going to feel something and I was scared because there I was sitting on a lifetime of unprocessed rage and anxiety. So if you get too close to me, I have to go because I don't know what it's going to look like when this, when the top comes off, I imagine there's gonna be a lot of collateral damage. So I needed to really be in an incubator where I could start to do rage work. I mean, it took me years in group to just look at someone and say, I feel angry. That seemed, now I can do it um, on a normal, in a normal volume (laughs) and I can do it in my, my daily life, but I could not do that when I walked in and that seems like not a big deal, but it was a complete stumbling block to my own ability to attach.
2: So I was just talking to my sister on the phone today because I've had quite a few few people in my close life, immediate family passed away in like the last couple of years. So, but my grief always comes out as anger and it comes, it's weird. Like I, you know, I've, I've cried when it happened, but I'm just so mad. I'm like, why is everybody dying around me? Like, fuck this. This isn't fair. Like that type of anger. And it's I, I, I'm embarrassed sometimes because I'm like, oh, I should be feeling this way. I should be feeling sad. I should be this and this and this. And it's there's no proper way to grieve. And mm-hmm. I think um just having the ability to be open with emotions and letting yourself feel and give yourself the grace to feel whatever that is, even if it is ugly or Smashing a flower pot on your head or, (laughs) you know, wherever it may be. um, I was like, I could see as one does (laughs) that. That's the thing. I just like rage quit and I find myself at work. Um, It comes out there, you know, I'll just go into the break room and my angriness and sadness combine into this. I'm so frustrated. Mm -hmm. I'm not ready for another patient. And I just start crying and it's like, where the hell is this coming from? Like, who is she? And it's just bottled Mm -hmm. up. So and that's that's why we need therapy, yep. and this year is our year again. <laughs> it's just crazy how it forms.
0: Yeah, and I mean, healthcare is one of the most repressed emotionally, like, careers, because in training beforehand on TV, in the media, by mm-hmm. your um, superiors or in the hierarchy, by administrators, by everyone that wants to make healthcare look like this safe, beautiful, um, rose colored glasses, haven for care, when in reality, under the circumstances that exploit people for their labor, it's not actually that. It's quite horrific and it doesn't have to be. And us grappling with that while trying to care for people And being expected to do the impossible, you might have some emotions around that. But you're not allowed to share them with anyone around you, with your patients, with your coworkers, with your colleagues, and especially not around your leaders, because it's going to make it look like things aren't safe. When in reality, they're not safe regardless of whether or not you are crying in the break room or in front of your patients because you're having a breakdown. And... That's the problem that we're we're undergoing here in healthcare. Is that we're trying to paint a beautiful picture, uh, like we're painting shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> like no matter how hard we try, we're putting glitter on a big pile of poop, and it's not that we're not trying. We're doing absolutely everything we can, but it's not working because we're drudging through. Neck level poop. Like That's all I can say. Sorry for all the poop. But geez, Louise. So it's like, I just love Christy that you're no bullshit, you know. You're no bullshit. And and we try to be no bullshit here because the bullshit yeah. is what's getting, what has gotten us to this point. And we're at this breaking yeah. point. And I just appreciate when we can actually have raw and honest conversations beyond, like, you can get help without every single barrier that prevents you from getting it. Do you have any final words of wisdom for our listeners who might be going through a really terrible time and feel like there's no way out? Um, Could be pot smashing, you know, whatever it needs to be.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, I had a friend who she was in my therapy group and then her schedule changed and her finances changed and so she was no longer able to come downtown and you know it's asking a lot to you got to set aside time and money and that's not something everybody has so i don't take it for granted that i have that luxury but she had left group and she was like well i'm I'm still angry (laughs) you know that didn't stop the anger and so she went to goodwill and she bought like for ten dollars she bought a bunch of dishes and she went in her garage she put on goggles she went in her garage she invited us over some of us who had been in her group and she just smashed and we all smashed them. She started out and then we started to see like the communal, we could do more than just watch her. And we were just, we were just hurling this, you know, I was like, Oh, this is someone's China. But then on the back, we could tell it was from target um, which is fine. But I sort of liked the story of like, this was somebody's ancient China from, you know, 1888 in Connecticut. No, it was from target. Um, And so we were just smashing things against the garage. And, and it's great to have a fancy psychiatrist who could give you drugs and to sit on a beautiful couch, but like, there's also ways to DIY this. And if you're desperate, if there's any way to eke out some, some rage, when I first started doing rage work in group, I, I would come out. I mean, you got 90 minutes. That's how long my group was. And then I've got the rest of my life to live. Like I got all those other days and weeks and it's, I would be driving along and someone like, I would just be triggered, right? Like someone had cut me off or I would think about, you know the way the men are treated at law school versus the women, I'd be off to the races and I would just get in my car and I would scream, just scream, <laughs> just nonsense. Um, and it was just, I knew I was sort of like you know, i have an Instapot like I was just turning that valve so some of that steam could just get it up and out of my body. And maybe that's a first step, like to find a place to rage. A second level was find someone to rage with you. A third level, find a group. But you know, if you can only do one, one time I got in the elevator at work. Okay, this was like, I was so stressed out at work and someone had just asked me for something completely outrageous and inhumane. And of course I said, yes. So now I am i haven't eaten, and I'm staring down this thing, and I went and rode the elevator up and down and just screamed and screamed and screamed. Okay, that's okay, but also they called security, and they're like, someone is screaming in the elevator. <laughs> I mean, that must have been terrifying for the other people around. Um, so I'm not totally recommending that. One of my friends is a swimmer, and she'll go swimming, and she'll be underwater just like screaming, which I'm not a big swimmer. I, I think I would drown if I tried that route, but... Um, if there's just something you can do to get the, get, get some of that out of your body, you know, for me, it's easier to make decisions. If I can just, if I can get a little clearer, cause I can't always get more sleep. I can't always get better food, but I can scream. I can scream (laughs) and no one can stop me. So that would be, that's my hack for the rage work I've done over, you know, 20 years in group.
2: Yeah. I'm a car screamer. Like if I something pisses me off or even if it's yeah, yeah like road rage yeah. or something I'm like I'm not going to cause something there because I don't want to die today but I will just go ah I like scream in my car and it's just like guttural right. and it's so beautiful and then I go okay we're good let's turn on our Taylor Swift let's get back to it we're good like <laughs> but I just it it is good
0: yeah. exactly <laughs> together. my husband and I do that <laughs> together and it's just oh. random randomly I'll be like Ah, and then he's like ah, and then we look at each other we're like ah, and then we just what? keep doing it and it's like amazing and we've been doing that for years and it's like and then we like why did we just do that and I th- I'm like I think we're a little stressed out <laughs> a little bit
2: <laughs> but it's great <laughs> or I just run run my troubles away or work out my the sweat sweat it out that's always helpful too
1: Yes, yes, moving the body, I think getting getting the body involved in and in changing the state has been a real I didn't know that when I was younger. I wish I would have known that. I wouldn't have just sat around eating bread. You know, I would have Nothing wrong with bread, but that's yeah. not going to exactly alter my mood in the way in the direction I want to go.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Christy. Uh, you guys, if our listeners out there who felt inspired by her work, you can find her at Christy O'Tate on Instagram. And her website is to christytape.com for information on like upcoming writing workshops, how to get your hands on her books and everything. So, thank you so much. I'm and please, like, honestly, my, my fellow readers out there, just listen or read her book. It's really good. I promise.
0: Let it out and scream, Let- y'all. <laughs> I
2: know sometimes my patients like screaming. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. really more than, I'm like thank that must be nice. That must be nice. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like someone feels better it's not
1: <laughs> somebody feels better
2: <laughs> go, go in
1: the room and scream with them like, ah! <laughs> thank you yeah. so much for having me this is just a wonderful conversation and i know that your community is so lucky to have you and and that that reverberates out in the world so thank you
2: okay. <laughs> now with the now we're
1: coming. crying <laughs> well okay